No sooner had Richard Wright's native son appeared on March 1, 1940, than the author took to the podium to explain what his book meant. Speaking at the Harlem branch of the New York City Public Library less than two weeks after publication, Wright presented How Bigger Was Born, a lengthy analysis of the origins and meaning of his novel and its protagonist, Bigger Thomas. Soon the speech would be published in pamphlet form by Harper's and even packaged with subsequent editions of the novel. Many authors leave the question of what their novels mean to others. Not so Richard Wright. In this remarkable 35-page critical reflection, Wright sought to shape the interpretation of his work before most people even had a chance to read it. Why did he feel the need to? What was he concerned readers might miss? Today, we examine the story of Richard Wright's Native Son, the first black American bestseller, a novel that is both a shocking page-turner and a philosophical provocation-stirring controversy to this day. You're listening to Remarkable Receptions, a podcast about popular and critical responses to African-American novels. Native Son tells the story of Bigger Thomas, a black youth from Chicago's South Side. At the start of the novel, Bigger lives with his mother and siblings in a cramped, rat-infested tenement, enduring poverty and battling despair. Pressured to support the household, Bigger accepts work as a chauffeur for the wealthy white Dalton family. But things take a horrific turn when Bigger's fear of being found alone with the rebellious young white woman he is caring for leads him to accidentally smother Mary Dalton in her bed. This act of violent desperation throws Bigger and the reader into a shocking odyssey through society and humanity on the brink. American newspapers had long used the racist image of quote-unquote black criminals to sell newspapers and sometimes incite lynch mobs. That's Joseph G. Ramsey, a professor of English and American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. But this was the first time a popular novel appeared about a black killer written by an African-American and relating the violence from the killer's perspective. In just the first week, Native Son sold 215,000 copies, an extremely large run for a first novel. The book remained on the national bestseller list for months, hitting number one in New York City, Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and St. Louis, Missouri. This made Native Son the first best-selling black novel. The response from readers and reviewers was overwhelming. Over 400 reviews and print responses to the book appeared in just the two years after its publication, from coast to coast, as far north as Maine and as far south as Houston, Texas. The African American press was filled with positive responses, including the New York Amsterdam News, the Chicago Defender, the Baltimore Afro-American, and the Philadelphia Tribune. Many white Southern reviewers were surprisingly sympathetic as well. The book became a popular library choice across the country, though it was banned in Birmingham, Alabama. Native Son quickly became a contender for the Pulitzer Prize, a first for an African-American author. And in 1941, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, chose Richard Wright for its prestigious Spingarn Medal, an award given annually to the black American judge to have made the most notable achievement in the previous year. 
As influential critic Irving Howe wrote in 1963, the day Native Son appeared, American culture was changed forever. There were, of course, dissenters. Some African American reviewers expressed concerns that the depiction of Bigger Thomas as an unrepentant killer would perpetuate harmful anti-black stereotypes. On the other hand, several conservative critics denounced the book for trafficking in anti-white race hatred or pro-communist propaganda. Wright was, at the time, still a public member of the Communist Party. Meanwhile. Wright's communist comrades debated the book passionately, provoked by its portrait of a deep disconnect between left-wing organizers and Chicago's black population. Beyond the press, Native Son was soon adapted as a successful stage play in New York City, directed by Orson Welles and featuring celebrated black actor Canada Lee. Later, it would be turned into a much less successful film. With none other than Richard Wright cast in the role of Bigger Thomas, it would not be the last time that the line between Wright and his protagonist would become blurred. The way for Native Son was paved by two major historical events: the Great Migration and the Great Depression. The Great Migration saw millions of rural blacks moving out of the South and into the cities of the Northeast, Midwest, and West after the Civil War, pushed by racist terror and pulled by the promise of industrial employment. Urban conditions made possible the expansion of black press and readership, while also raising public consciousness about race and class inequality. Equally crucial was the Great Depression, which devastated millions, but also opened cultural space for a new type of American literature—a proletarian literature told from the point of view of the poor and dispossessed. Wright was born in Natchez, Mississippi, in 1908, and moved from Memphis, Tennessee, to Chicago in 1927. Like most newly arrived blacks, he found himself confined to a segregated ghetto on the South Side. Nonetheless, Wright found his first community of writers through the Chicago John Reed Club. Formed in the early 1930s with the support of the Communist Party, the John Reed Clubs were multiracial centers for workers and artists alike. The Chicago JRC gave the young Richard Wright his first serious literary fellowship and first print publications, as well as a sense of being part of a global movement for social justice. In 1939, the year before Native Son would appear, the bestseller lists were dominated by John Steinbeck's *The Grapes of Wrath*. The book relayed the struggles of a white Oklahoma family who, after the bank forecloses on their farm, are forced to migrate to struggle for work in the fruit fields of California. *The Grapes of Wrath* sold 430,000 in its first year and won both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Demonstrating beyond a doubt that there was a popular audience for novels that explored the struggles of dispossessed people, commercial publishers took notice. Enter the Book of the Month Club, a literature subscription service founded in 1926, whose extensive membership guaranteed big sales, offering newly published books a stamp of approval backed by a panel of literary judges. The club helped establish the success of breakthrough novels, from Ernest Hemingway's *The Sun Also Rises* (1926) to Margaret Mitchell's *Gone with the Wind* (1936). 
Now with help from Wright's Harper's Press editor Edward Aswell and literary agent Paul Reynolds, the BOMC recruited Wright's native son as a main selection, the first time a black authored text had ever been chosen. Nice as the honor and guaranteed book sales were, there was a price paid for this mainstream endorsement. Along with the club's promotion came a compulsory introduction by BOMC editor Dorothy Canfield Fisher. Fisher praised Native Son, but her introduction framed Wright's novel less as a work of art than a social science report. She likened Bigger Thomas and urban African-American youth to disturbed laboratory rats. Often in American history, black authors had been required to have a white writer introduce their text, authenticating it for a white audience. The BOMC allowed Wright to reach wider readership, but it denied him the chance to do so in his own terms. The club also demanded cuts to the text itself, most notably excising any reference to Bigger's sexuality. Any wonder, then, that Wright quickly turned to promoting his own extended public interpretation of Native Son. In How Bigger Was Born, Wright returned to Fisher's laboratory comparison. Why should I not, like a scientist in a laboratory, use my imagination and invent test tube situations and place Bigger in them, he wrote. But whereas Fisher likened Bigger to a disturbed animal, Wright emphasized his universal human character. Wright explains his literary laboratory with an analogy, asserting that the extreme living conditions forced upon black Americans offer a window into future reactions of the U.S. body politic living under increasing stresses of modern life. Wright radically revised Fisher's laboratory metaphor. That's Professor Joe Ramsey. He emphasized bigger not as a symbol of some exceptional Negro problem, but what he called a, quote, prophecy of our future, by which he meant the future of all dislocated and dispossessed people in modern capitalist society across race and national lines. Bigger Thomas was not black all the time, Wright wrote. He was white, too, and there were literally millions of him everywhere. All Bigger Thomases, white and black, felt tense, afraid, nervous, hysterical, and restless. Wright sought to show how such paralyzing anxiety could become dangerously coupled with a hunger to feel, quote, alive through violent action, whether directly or vicariously through the violence of others. Bigger represented for Wright a volatile part of society that might demand positive radical change or else get sucked into the frenzy of fascism. At the heart of the horrifying paradox of Native Son is the way that Bigger Thomas seems to experience himself as free and fully alive only after he has committed his horrible, though accidental, crime. The killing of Mary Dalton, an act that all but dooms Bigger to prison and execution, nonetheless appears to liberate Bigger psychologically from the repression that dominates his everyday life. It's as if only by embracing an identity as criminal fugitive that he glimpses the possibility of genuine action. The thought of what Bigger had done, the awful horror of it, the daring associated with such actions, formed for the first time in his fear-ridden life, a barrier of protection between him and the world he feared. He had murdered and had created a new life for himself. It was something that was all his own, and it was the first time in his life he had had anything 
that others could not take from him. Though he had killed by accident, not once did he feel the need to tell himself that it has been an accident. He was black, and he had been alone in a room where a white girl had been killed. Therefore, he had killed her. That was what everybody would say anyhow, no matter what he said. His crime felt natural. He felt that all of his life had been leading to something like this. No, it was no accident. And he would never say that it was. There was in him a kind of terrified pride in feeling and thinking that someday he would be able to say publicly that he had done it. From Richard Wright's Native Son It's safe to say that few readers had ever encountered a literary character like Bigger Thomas. Repeatedly, they testified to the power of the work, likening the experience of reading Native Son to being struck by a physical blow. You took the wind out of me, Wright's close friend and fellow Chicago novelist Nelson Algren wrote to Wright privately. You hit me with something, something you've been hiding behind your back all the while. Algren added that he hoped to someday be grateful for being slugged out of a coma. But would other readers emerge from the blow so thankful, so awakened? Over the years, Native Son has become a catalyst for debates on a range of important topics, from racism and capitalism to urban sociology and the effects of mass media, from black nationalism to Marxism, from gender inequality to existentialism. The book has inspired literally hundreds of scholarly articles and dozens of books, paving the way for astonishing African-American novels like Chester Himes' If He Hollers, Let Him Go, 1945, and Anne Petrie's The Street, 1946. At the same time, the success of Native Son also provoked reactions against what some called the right school of protest fiction. The young James Baldwin, a rising star in 1949, accused Wright of having let his drive to expose societal injustice eclipse the humanity of black people. Such a protest novel, Baldwin claimed, reproduced a simplistic moral self-righteousness while perpetuating racist ideas. Hatred, Baldwin wrote, smolders through these pages like sulfur fire. Many have repeated a version of Baldwin's critique since, including some feminist critics who have argued that Bigger's violence against women in the text expresses Wright's own misogyny. More recently, black public intellectual Ibram X. Kendi has expressed similar concerns about Wright's alleged imbrutalization of black people. But no close reader of How Bigger Was Born can mistake the views of Bigger for those of Wright himself. And to see Bigger Thomas as simply a symbol of social hatred requires ignoring key moments in Native Son, too. Internally, Bigger struggles constantly between hate and flickering hope, but it is only when he is listened to closely by others, a rare occurrence, that Bigger expresses more life-affirming thoughts. Perhaps Baldwin was responding less to the text of Native Son than to his sense of the book's reception by the broader public, a reception encouraged by liberal white editors. 
there are undoubtedly still those who read Native Son against Wright's own wishes more as a report on Negro life than as the novel it was. A deep artistic exploration of humanity seeking a shield of empowerment, however illusory, in the face of conditions that appear hopeless. Certainly, the dehumanizing laboratory frame that Fisher offered in 1940 has haunted critics of the novel for 80 years. But in the end, it was only because Native Son reached a mass audience that Wright got the chance to struggle with us all about what his novel meant. And we've been arguing about Bigger Thomas ever since. This episode was written by Joseph G. Ramsey. The episode was edited by Elizabeth Callie and me, Howard Ramsey. This podcast, Remarkable Receptions, is part of the Black Literature Network, a joint project from African American Literary Studies at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the History of Black Writing at the University of Kansas. This project was made possible by the generous support of the Mellon Foundation. For more information, visit blacklitnetwork.org.